Good morning. What an incredible, beautiful day this is for us to gather together with one another to worship uh, God. I can't tell you how, how, how uh, joy-filled my heart is to look out and to see such an incredible crowd with us this, this morning. Uh, your being here is such a, a wonderful uh, treat and something that is so important to being together with one another, so I'm glad to see you. One of the things that I noted this morning as I was sitting up front here and, and kind of preparing my mind for the, the, the worship service was to listen to all the buzz going on and people enjoying each other's company. And I noticed that as Dave got up here, you guys continued to talk for a while. And, and that's kind of reminiscent of probably almost 11 months ago. And so anyway, it's just good to all be here this morning. For those of you who are online, we're glad that you are with us streaming. And so appreciate your spirit and your presence and you uh, being here. So this morning, what we're going to do is I want to wrap up last year's theme on identity. I know that we're two weeks into the, the new year, and so you might be wondering, why have you waited till two weeks later to do it? And it's because I began the theme, it was supposed to be a year-long thing, I began the theme in January. In February, Lori and I, we went to Cameroon, and we got back in March, and we were in this COVID thing, and so I suspended the lessons until June, and then seeing that you know we're going to be in this situation, I began back into the series, and so... Uh, it's taken us to this point to get to it, but I, but I wanted to, to wrap this up by sharing with you some of the things that this all had to do with. You know, the day that we were immersed into Christ for the remission of our sins, each of us took on a new identity. Over in 2 Peter, the first chapter, Peter said that that new identity was a new nature or a divine nature that has been given to us because of this relationship that we now have with God. And he went on to talk about the various qualities that make up that new uh, nature. In Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul says that he urged his readers to be living sacrifices, to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And then he said, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, of course, we've used all along 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 that says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so as we enter into this new relationship with God, we take on this new identity, this new way of, of, of how we uh, see ourselves. There is a uniqueness about those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, those of us who call ourselves Christian by name, and, and our identity is important. So over the weeks and the months of sharing with you these various lessons, I've used a number of, of examples of various ways that uniquely distinguish us, us from different people or from one another even. For instance, our fingerprints, and I think I've said to you that your fingerprints are unique to you and to you alone, and not any one of the ten fingers on your hands are exactly alike, but they distinguish you as an individual for you share them with no one else. Even the way you walk, your, your gate, I think we call that your spiritual gate, even the way you walk separates you uniquely from anyone else. Your irises, to look into your iris, no one else has an iris like you have in your life. Our birth certificates set us apart, our driver's license, our passports. There's numerous images that are given to us that kind of explain how different we are from one another and how unique we are in our own special way in God's sight. One of the ways that the military, for instance, uses it as a means of identifying their personnel are, call, are called dog, tie, dog tags. It's a primary identifying mark of their, their people. And they're used because if a person was in the event of being wounded or maybe even killed in action, they have a means of identifying that person. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever thought, why in the world uh, would we come up with this idea of dog tags? Where did that tradition come from? Where did that mandate come from where they take these two metal tags and uh, put them on a chain and hang them around a, a personnel's neck or a soldier's neck? What was the, why did they do that? Well, there is a number of theories of how it all came about. You can go back in theories all the way back to, say, the Spartans who had their shields laid over them when they uh, died in battle, as well as a number. But in America, it seems as though the tradition of wearing a dog tag stems back from the Civil War. Probably the most bloody conflict in American history. In fact, the, the most bloody con uh, uh, conflict in American history were over 600 and 20,000, depending on who you, you talk to, they go from anywhere from 618,000 to almost 700,000 uh, soldiers perished in the war between the states. And one of the things that really bothered the soldiers was this fright within them, this terror within them that said if they were to be killed in, in battle, who would know who they were? Would they be placed in unmarked graves? Would anyone be able to identify them? And so there's this great fright within that caused them to do things like they would take and, and stencil on their uniform their, their names. They would take maybe pieces of paper or a tattered cloth and put their names on it and pin it to their uniforms. Uh, some would uh, take copper or lead circles and would put their names or engrave their names on them and attach them to their uniforms or to their, their bodies. The Marines said that some of the guys, they took pieces of wood and would scroll in the wood their names and hang it around their necks. If you had a lot of money, there were non-government people who followed those in the war, and if you had enough money, you could buy a circular circle disc that they would write your name and some other important criteria on there, but there was ways of, of doing that. They were afraid of dying in battle and someone not knowing who they were and being placed in unmarked graves. In fact, it's estimated that almost 50% of those soldiers who died were unaccounted for or were buried in unmarked graves. For instance, at the Vicksburg Cemetery, the National Cemetery, a Union cemetery, of the more than 70, uh, 17,000 buried troops buried there, the largest Union cemetery in the U.S., nearly 13,000 of those graves are marked unknown. So you can see why these, these dog tags eventually become uh, popular. In fact, because of that war, war and because of that, that, those things happening there, there became a movement where it says, listen, there's probably some really good reasons why we need to be able to identify those men and women who are serving our, our country. And eventually that would catch on to some degree. In fact, the first official request for ID tags came in 1899 at the end of the Spanish-American War where there are those in government who say, you know what, we need to be able to identify those who are wounded in battle and those who die in, in battle. And so the dog tag became a means of identifying those people. December 1906, the Army, uh, they put out a general order that required an aluminum disc-shaped ID tag the size of a, a silver, a, a half dollar, to be worn around the necks of the soldiers, either by or probably by a cloth lanyard, but those tags had to be put around their necks. 
And over the years, the dog tags took on a number of different things. They would have their name. It would have their division. It would have maybe the, the core or the company that they were serving. Later on, as you got into the Second World, First World War and into the Second World War, into the Korean War and the Vietnam War, the tag began to take on a different form from a circle to being rectangular, from being made of aluminum to it being made of, uh, uh, of silver or stainless steel, I mean. And on there, they would add things like their, the name, their serial number, their, their blood type, and maybe their religious affiliation. So it might say they're Catholic or Baptist or Church of Christ or non-affiliated, but there would be a means of being able to identify that, that person. Then, of course, well, why two dog tags? Because those who decide that they're going to serve, they allow these dog tags to be hung around their necks, wore below, beneath their uniforms. Why two dog tags? And the answer is so that in the event of their death, uh, one of their dog tags are recorded or, or recovered, and then one is left with the dead soldier so that they can identify him. Sometimes he said during the Second World War that they would take the dog tag and they would wrap it around his, his toe. And that's why it was called known as a toe tag. And so the dog tag went through an evolution, a, a change, but its primary means was that of identifying the, the, the soldier. And what it means is that when a man or woman allows the, the military to put this dog tag or this chain with two dog tags around their, their necks, what it was saying and what it was saying to them and what it says to the military and what it says to you and me is this. It was a symbol of their willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice. That they're willing to die for their country. That they're willing to die so that you would have the benefits of living as a, a free person. When you talk to military personnel over the years and, and you asked him, what's the most important, the, the uniform itself or the dog tag? And many, it's somewhat debatable, but many would say, well, the uniform is secondary to the dog tag because the military uniform, it represents the branch of the military that you serve, that you serve as a United States soldier. But the dog tag, it identifies who you are. And so it becomes something that is personal. And so a lot of guys who, and, and women who, uh, leave the military and are discharged, they keep their, their dog tags as a reminder, as a keepsake of those years that they gave in military service. So dog tags are important to the, the military. My question for you this morning would be this, as a Christian, as soldiers of the cross, what identifies you? Because obviously, when you are immersed into Christ, no one gives you a dog tag. No one hangs that dog tag around you that identifies you. So what is it that identifies you as a, a Christian? And the answer to that is, is your willingness to be a living sacrifice. Just as that soldier wears that dog tag saying that I'm willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for freedoms and for the benefit of our country, a Christian, we become living sacrifices in order that the church benefits from that. Obviously, we benefit from that, but for the, the fact that we become free in Christ and, and that, there are, that we benefit the congregation or the people that we are in rank with, that we serve with. And that's why Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of, of worship. And so he talks about this living sacrifice, and, and that living sacrifice talks about the way we conduct ourselves, how we use the various gifts that God has given to us. And so over these last uh, couple of, uh, these last, this last year, I've talked to you about identity. And when you talk about identity as a theme, I'm talking about who you are. And so I broke the, the theme down into two series of lessons. And the first one had to do with embracing your true nature, taken from 2 Peter, the first chapter, verses 1 down through 12, where Peter, he lays out before us seven qualities, seven characteristics that distinguish us, us from a non-Christian or those who are not followers of of Jesus Christ. Seven qualities identifying marks of character that uh, distinguish us, that makes us what Peter says effective and fruitful. Actually, he says, if you do not have these qualities, it makes you ineffective and unfruitful. The positive side of that is, is if these qualities are yours, then you are become someone that's effective in the body of Christ and even among those that you live and work with in, in life. And not only that, but the spirits that you have in nature. And so he lays out seven qualities. And so let me just go down through them very quickly for you as a reminder. Remember the first one, he says, add to your faith moral excellence. And that word moral excellence comes from the Greek, arete. And it's, and it's a word that has to do with this very idea of being virtuous or having this moral excellence that God has established a code of conduct or a standard of right living. And that when we choose to be morally excellent, we are choosing to do the right thing in face of temptation or peer pressure that comes to us from culture or, or friends or from society itself. And that, and that pressure is, is to live our own way and to do our own thing and maybe even to live according to the code or the standard of our world which in, in my estimation, or at least in, in my opinion, that I've never seen our world more turned upside down today when it comes down to what is right and what is wrong as to today. I'm sure preachers over the years have probably said the same thing in their day and age, but that's what I'm seeing. And in my lifetime, I've never seen where things get so blurred, where people think right is wrong and, and wrong is, is right, and that there's this upside down thing that's happening God has established a moral standard, a way of living life that is found within the pages of his word and that we're expected to be into that and that it allows us or encourages us to do the right thing in life, no matter what someone else might say to you. Then he says, to your moral excellence, he says, add knowledge. Embrace this knowledge. Well, what is this knowledge that he's talking about? Well, in one sense, he's talking about having a, a deep and abiding and intimate a knowledge of who God is and what God is about. When you understand that God is a holy God, when you understand that God does not think the way you think or do things the way you think things ought to be do, done, as my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways, He's just telling us that I am different from you in a lot of ways and that you are to understand that. You understand that I'm a holy God and there are expectations that I have for those who are my children and that it's expected of you. And part of that is not only knowing him in this intimate fashion, but it's knowing what he expects, knowing what he says is morally right as composed to that which is evil. 
And so we are to know what's right, right and wrong. Well, how do you know that? Well, the only way you can know what's right and wrong is by opening up God's word and studying it. And God then tells us, here's what's right. Here's what is wrong. Here's what I expect of you. This is my mind written on pages. And so we are to know what is right and wrong so that we can be moral, ex morally excellent uh, people. Which laid to the third thing, he says, to your virtue, add knowledge, and to your knowledge, he then says, add self-control. Why self-control? Well, because it's going to take a lot of control to do that which is right. To stop doing the things that are wrong, and to keep doing the things that are, are right. And that takes control to do that. And we understand that in all kinds of areas of, of life. If you go to school, you understand that, that there's got to be self-control when it comes to getting up in, in the morning. If you go to work, it's the same kind of scenario. There are things that you know that involve self-control. Well, should it be any different when it comes down to being followers of Jesus? When it comes down to living according to a code of conduct that God has established that we are to be living sacrifices in, that we are to practice self-control. And then he says to your self-control, add perseverance. Perseverance, that's where you just, you know, where the world is just pounding at you. You have the media that pounds at you. You have entertainment that pounds at you. You have a news cycle that pounds at you. You have all kinds of things, society speaking, that is pressuring you to do things the world's way, while at the same time you have God saying, I want you to do it this way, and that's going to take perseverance. That you're going to have to be able to stand up against the things that are going to be tempting you to do the wrong, and then for you to do that which is, <clears throat> of course, right. And then he says, to that, add godliness. And you recall when we talked about godliness, we said, well, what exactly is godliness? And I said to you, well, godliness simply is your devotion to God. How devoted are you to God? And when you talk about devotion uh, to, to God, well, if, if you're devoted to God, then you're going to be morally excellent. It's going to come in its place. If you're devoted to God, then you're going to want to increase your knowledge you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That's what 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 uh, says. You're going to want to practice self-control because of your devotion to God. I'm going to do it because I love you, God, because I'm devoted to you. I'm going to choose right over wrong, and I'm going to fight through this temptation. And then Peter adds to this a sixth quality, and that is our sixth quality, which is brotherly uh, kindness. When you talk about brotherly kindness and passing the eye test, we're talking about here's where, it gets, here's where we get challenged in being Christians because brotherly kindness is the quality of love that extends to members of God's family. Remember, uh, the next quality is the word love, okay? And so you say, well, what's the difference between brotherly kindness and love? Well, the difference is, is that brotherly kindness has to do with how we interact with one another and how we share love with one another another. There are times that we're unlovable people. There are times when we are offensive. There are, there are times when we are antagonistic. There are times when we can be rude and, and mean and insensitive. There are times like that when that goes on in all of our, our lives, which means to practice brotherly kindness is to give each other slack. 
It's to give each other room to grow. It's to recognize that all of us are not at the same level of spiritual maturity, that we mature in various degrees, and that we understand that about one another, and that we practice this idea of brotherly love that we extend. And I think that's why Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another, even as I have loved you. So watch you to love one another. Well, are we always someone that's lovable to Jesus? Well, I can guarantee you that's, that we're not. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he extended love to those who just nailed him to the cross, who mocked and speak and beat him. And yet he says to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's love from the cross that extended to the unlovable people, but he loves, and that's how we're to be with one another. And it can be challenging. And of course, the last one was, was that of love itself. We call that the autograph of autograph of of God. And I called it the autograph of God because the Bible says in John 4, uh, 1 John 4 and verse 8 that God is love. And God demonstrates his love in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you become that autograph. As children of God made after his image, we are to love in that fashion. And that love there is a love that has no string attached to it. I don't love you because you're good. I don't love you because you're perfect. I don't love you because you're, not, you're as committed as I am. I don't love you for any of those extemporaneous or those extemporary reasons. I love you because you've been purchased by the blood of, of Jesus. And so I have the love of God. And so, so Peter says, you need to add these seven qualities to your life. When, you present, uh, when we present our lives, Peter says, it makes us both fruitful and effective both in the church and in the world around us. Because we may, not think, we may think that you know, the world doesn't love Christians or uh, the, the world doesn't like uh, Christians. And that might be so, but there is an expectation that they have of us. They expect us to be better than they are. They expect us to be light in a dark world. They can be dark all they want, but they want someone. They need someone to be light for them. And so we become effective and fruitful even to those who may not appreciate who we are or what we are. I like what Horace Greeley says, fame is a vapor. Popularity and accident. Riches take wings. Only one thing endures, and that's your character. Your Christian character. These seven qualities that are there. So embracing your true nature. In the second series, we talked about gifts and, and talents from Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. And in particular, verses 6 down through 8. And there he says, in that section of scripture, after Paul says that we're to offer our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, he tells you what that sacrifice looks like in terms of gifts that he's given to the church. And he says, all of us have been given gifts, and they may be uniquely different from one another's, but nevertheless, they are gifts that are there. And so he lays out that as Christians, soldiers, we are to offer ourselves in this, this fashion, and that they're going to make us effective. So what do those gifts look like? Well, gifts and talents that uh, motivate. And so as you look to uh, my right and to your left, you'll see those seven gifts that uh, God has given to the church that he says that he graciously gives to the church. And these gifts are referred to as motivational gifts because God puts a motivation in the hearts of some people that motivates them to use this gift 
in incredible ways for the benefit of the body. But not only does it do that, it does something else. The gift not only motivates the recipient, it also motivates us that we would be active as well. And though we may not have the gift of prophecy, nevertheless, we are to be those who are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Even though we may not have the gift of service, we are to be those who are, are serving and so on. So as we begin to go down through these gifts, just let me remind you, the first gift that, that Paul mentions here is that of prophecy. This gift is within a person they have uh, this drive to do a bold proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ with an emphasis on telling people to change. And you know people that have that gift because they'll say it when no one else will say it. They'll speak forth when no one else will speak forth. Let me tell you, when you talk about the prophets of old who were mouthpieces of God and they proclaimed the truth of the people, the people didn't like it. I mean, they threw them into cisterns. They sawed them in half. They did a lot of terrible things to them. If you talk about the apostles, who obviously were gifted with proclamation, they certainly paid the ultimate price. And so this gift had to do with individuals who are willingly to boldly proclaim to people the truth. Sometimes it's like this, where there is a body of people that are being spoke to, and sometimes it's just you speaking one-on-one with a person or with a couple of people about their life, maybe about their lifestyles, where you're going to tell them the truth about them, themselves. They may not like you. They may really dislike you. But on a, on a, a, number, of, or on a number of occasions, they might say, you know what, that really ticks me off. But now that I think about it, you're probably right about that. That takes a boldness to do that, and it's gifted to be able to do that. But we're all to be those who proclaim the good news. Service, a gift that motivates certain people to see the needs of others and then to serve them. Uh, we're to serve one another. Our love, we're to serve one another, Paul tells the Galatians. So service is a gift that is there, and we likened it to uh, the sheep and the goats of Matthew 25 that Jesus told us a parable. <clears throat> and in that parable, he talks about, I was hungry and you gave, or I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you, you, were, you were there for me. I was in prison and you visited me and so on. That's talking about a heart of service. And so some people have within themselves, they see a need that needs to be done and they do it. It's just in them to to serve. You don't have to beat them up from the pulpit. You don't have to tell them what to do. They're just naturally gifted in the area of a service. Another gift was that of teaching, the third gift. This gift motivates people to want to teach. There's this drive within them. You can usually tell a person who has the gift of teaching because they love to do it. And you can tell it because when they teach, you can tell that they've put time into it and preparation into it. And not only that, but they're excited about what they want to tell you. They're excited about the truth that they're going to be sharing with you. So there is this passion that is placed within a person to study the Word of God and then to communicate it with others. And that motivates the rest of us to want to teach as well. Encouragement, a gift that spurs others on. And we looked at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 24 and 25, where in verse 24 it says, Let us consider how to stimulate or to spur one another up or to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the custom of some, but encouraging 
one another. And that's why assemblies are so important, because they encourage. I try to encourage you, but you encourage me a hundredfold by you uh, being here and just seeing you and being with you and listening to you share your lives with one another. Some have that gift of encouragement. And we looked at Barnabas, who is known as the son of in encouragement. He was an encourager. He encouraged others. Then we talked about the gift of giving. I called it the gift of the open heart. God places within certain people a heart that is open to the needs of the people, and they're willing to give of their time, their energy. I think that what Paul was driving out was a monetary thing, but they gave, and we use it as the example of that over there in Acts 4 where uh, we saw that the uh, church was to gather and that they were selling property and homes and bringing the proceeds and laying them at the feet of the apostles. And then we learned about Barnabas who did likewise. Why did he do it? Because they motivated him to be the kind of encourager that he is. Then we talked about the gift of mercy, and I called it the compassion in action. Uh, you can have sympathy for someone. Your heart can go out to someone who is in need. You can feel for that person, but mercy is one that doesn't just feel. It acts upon that feeling. It acts upon that emotion, and so it's a compassion that is in action. And so a person may see a need that's there. They might see a person that is thirsty or hungry or naked or sick or in prison, and they may act on that out of a sense of duty or maybe even out of an act, a sense of service, but a person who sees that and feels that, that it drives them to help, that's what you call mercy. That's what you call mercy. And finally, we talked about the gift of, <clears throat> of leadership. And in the gift of leadership, we talk about that leadership is that which that influences people to go from point A to point B. And some have that ability to do that, to move people forward, not drive them, but to lead them forward to the things that need to be done. And some have that gift of, of doing so. So according to Paul, God, by his grace, has given seven different gifts uh, for the benefit of the church. And so we're encouraged to discover what our gift is. We're encouraged to develop our gift, to demonstrate that gift, and then to direct our gift for God's purposes. When I say develop the gift, you understand what I mean by that? Is that maybe you have the gift of proclamation, but you have to work on doing it. You read books, you listen to yourself, you watch other people, you learn how to be a better uh, a better speaker or to be a, one who is able to proclaim in a better way. You just work on your giftedness. When I say in the right direction, uh, you can use it either in a bad direction or you can use your gift in a negative direction. Uh, we need to go in the right uh, direction here. <clears throat> Did you see that? I almost fell off this pulpit up here. Making a difference is, is what it's really all about. Would you dare to embrace your new nature and God's gracious gift or gifts and make a significant impact uh, and, the difference, and a difference in the kingdom of, of God? Have you made a connection uh, between the time and place that you, you live and God's call upon your life? The Bible is replete with example after example of men and women who used the place in which they were living to make an impact. Esther, in the book of Esther, she is placed in the king's court as his wife. 
she was there. Her uncle Mordecai said to her, he goes, perhaps you have been put in this place for this moment. Remember, Haman was wanting to have all the Jews annihilated. And Mordecai, through his wisdom, says, maybe that's why you're here. And Esther said, you're probably right. And she stood in a gap. God placed her there. Or Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery to Ishmaelites, he ended up in Egypt, Potiphar's house, gets in trouble there, not on his own making, but gets in trouble, thrown into prison. Eventually, he rises second only to Pharaoh. Even Joseph himself says, the evil is not you, it is God who has placed me here. This drought is here, and my family's going to be saved because of that. He saw his place. And so I believe that God has purposely placed you where you are and has gifted you as he has, and that he expects us to accomplish great things because of that, of that fact. So as I close, this is the new year, right? And in the new year, you make resolutions. Let me show you with you a passage of scripture that you maybe haven't thought about. It's found over in John, the chapter 21. It's in the section, begins in verse 15 and goes down through 19. But in this section, uh, Peter, or Jesus has resurrected and he's met with his disciples in Galilee. And whether he pulls Peter aside or whether he says it in front of the rest of the guys, I don't know. But he asks Peter this question. He says, Peter, uh, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, well, Lord, you know I love you. He goes, okay, then feed my sheep. Peter, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my lambs. Uh, Simon, do you love me? Simon is touched in his heart, and he says, Lord, you know I love you. I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about resolutions, and, and here's what I determined is I don't think God wants resolutions out of us. I don't think he needs your resolutions. I don't think he needs your commitments or your loyalties or any of those things. What he wants is your love. He doesn't humiliate Peter. He doesn't castigate him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't do any of those things to him. He reaffirms him and asks him, Peter, you denied me three times, okay? That's not the end for you. What you need to think about is, do you love me? And if you love me, you'll do anything for me is the implication. And so in this new year, as we begin, that's the question that I would ask of you is, do you, do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, then Jesus is simply asking you to embrace your new nature and your gift. And you do so when you identify yourself with him, and that becomes your identification. So, you know, you don't need a dog tag to put around your neck. Your character will tell everybody who you are and how you use your gifts. That will demonstrate who you are. And the greatest question, as you think about being a living sacrifice, is this, how can I do that? Well, you can do it by answering the question, do you love Jesus? And that will be your answer. You'll know what you're to do if you can answer that question honestly within your heart. Well, together we stand and while we sing this song, and if you need to re respond for whatever reason, why don't you do so at this time? Sing the 